Welcome to the Earth's Edge podcast. I'm your host, James McManus. At Earth's Edge, we run guided expeditions with a focus on environmental and cultural sustainability. We created this podcast to share stories from people who have found the outdoors and fallen in love with adventure. Each month, we're giving away one of our summit jackets worth 150 euro. To be in the running, all you need to do is subscribe to our mailing list at earths-edge.com forward slash podcast. There's a link in the show notes. Now for today's guest. There is times when they'll tell you, go as fast as you can before the point of running. And there is points on the icefall, you know, at six or you're at 6,000 meters uh, where you're moving as fast as you can, absolutely gasping out of breath. That was John Burke, who summited Mount Everest back in 2017. I wanted to get him on the podcast because he didn't climb his first mountain until he was 28, and 10 years later, he was standing on top of the world. John tells me about all the mountains he climbed to prepare for Mount Everest, and he also shares stories from the expedition itself. I start out asking him about growing up in West Clare, and he tells me that like myself, he was absolutely useless at field sports growing up. I really hope you guys enjoy this one. Yeah, so I'm uh, from Spanish Point here, where I'm speaking to you from today. A long way away from big mountains here. Uh, you know, the only mountains are uh, uh, waves on the sea, but I, I actually never surfed or never went near them. Yeah, look, I, you know, I love, I'm passionate about West Clare. I, I live in, well, I work here. I'm living in Ennis now, but uh, yeah, I'm passionate about where I'm from. I'm in the tourism and hospitality business, and you know, I'm always flying that flag, so great to get the opportunity to fly it here as well. Born and reared in, 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 in Spanish Point, my family... My dad bought a pub 54 years ago this weekend, and my mother joined him uh, soon afterwards. And yeah, that's where I was reared overhead a pub in, in Spanish Point. It was uh, yeah, it was great. Loved it. And Kabir, were you into much uh, adventures growing up, or are you more GA background, or what? Like, uh, I was uh, very unsporty. Full stop. To be honest, like my whole family dynamic was all very focused on work. Like my dad was a unbelievable hard worker. My mother was too. You know, like we. Uh, they started with a very small pub here in, in, in Spanish Point, which is, you know, outside the village and outside the catchment area for a pub. And, and all our, all my upbringing, it was very much, everything was around work. And, and I enjoyed that. You know, my hobby was work and my downtime was work and family time was around work. And we lived and were reared overhead the pub. And, and my dad had no interest whatsoever in sport. Like it was the furthest thing from his mind. You know, in fact, it was nearly the opposite. We did have local lads applying for jobs behind the bar. And, you know, they come in with great pride saying they're the captain or vice captain of the local minor team or senior team. You know, he'd say, sorry, he said, you're, you're, you're not for here. He says, you've been looking for days off for training. You've looking for days off for games. He said, don't want to know about anyone that's coming here that's interested in GAA. So, no <laughs> so, so my own mindset was like, you know, what's the fucking point in chasing a ball of wind around the field? And, uh, and you know, Interestingly, then I was sent to uh, Flannans and Ennis to school, which is like you know, the sporting hub of County Clare, really. Like, you know, it was Harty Cups and, and GA football. It was all GA. And like I was tipping away playing a bit of football with the club. You know, either I'm untalented or either I had zero interest. I, I, you know, I like to put it down to the second that, you know, because I never had that culture of football or following sport or anything that I have no interest. Maybe I was untalented. There's a good chance of that. But uh, yeah, that in common with you as well, man. I've like, really? geez, I was useless at field sport. Useless. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I was on the local rugby team and there was only like 16 lads and I was the lad on the bench, like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> what was the first mountain you climbed like? 
first mountain I climbed was uh, 28 years of age, Carntool. Uh, so oh, wow. after, like, you know, after deciding to head off on this big journey to climb Mount Everest, I decided I better try and climb a mountain. And uh, and, and I started training and preparing for, for Carntool uh, okay. straight off the back of so hang on now a second, right? So you were basically, first thing you did was like, I want to climb Everest. And yeah. then you did Karen Tool. Yeah. Amazing, man. T- tell us about how that like decision came about. Like, It was Celtic Tiger. Business was going going really good. And, um, you know, every business was going really good in the Celtic Tiger, this artificial bubble that we're all working in. And like hotels were, you know, as just like the construction, completely caught up in this bubble. So I was able to borrow loads of money as a young lad and invested in the business and build rooms and extend and build a second hotel and all this crazy stuff. Like look at all the hotels survived and got out the other side is the good side. But at the time it was a bit, it was a bit like development was just at an exponential rate that wasn't real. In the middle, I suppose, towards just was around 2007 when this idea of, of Everest came to me. And I remember reading an article in the paper about the climbers on Everest at that stage and, uh, and something resonated with me. And I often have reflected, like, in hindsight, you know, why was it that Everest resonated with me, considering I had no sporting background? And I think my mindset was in a place that something needed to change my life. I was um, I was, I was, was completely unhealthy. I had no work-life balance whatsoever. You know, it was that 80, 100-hour weeks, you know, no days off, just love work, been there all the time. But I was completely unhealthy, completely overweight, you know, smoking, drinking, no idea about nutrition, any type of wellness in my life. And my dad passed away two months prior to reading this, he was only 62 years of age. And, you know, like his lifestyle was the exact same as my lifestyle, you know, like bottles of Lucozade left, right and centre and boxes of biscuits and everything else. And just like me, he had no exercise, no walks, not as even as much as a walk on the beach, like, you know, nothing. And I think my mindset was primed that, you know, I was starting to realise that Jesus, you know, still young, but I, I didn't want to live a full life. And I looked at him and, you know, it was cancer, but cancers can be so much related to lifestyle and all that. Totally, yeah. So I suppose I was probably uh, starting to think along those lines, something needed to change. And when I read that article, uh, something about it resonated with me. I knew team sports didn't suit me. I've mentioned that. And something about the hardship, I think, of mountaineering when I read about it. I love the idea of it. Like when I was growing up, I had two ultimate professions and one was hotel management and the other was the army I was obsessed with military like I was subscribing to the military publication from the age of 14 and reading it and obsessed with everything to do with military and uh, I was always fascinated by special forces as a result of that and I think you know uh, because I'd never participated much in sports I always wondered you know was I was there any metal underneath the skin or was did I take the soft option I'd never you know the hotels couldn't be further away from special forces great food, drink, comfort, never out in the cold or misery. And uh, and for so many different reasons, I suppose, uh, something about that, the idea of Everest and, and the idea of that article resonated with me. And I said, Jesus, you know what? Wouldn't that be uh, something amazing to, to aim for? Not having a notion about what was involved, of course. But knowing, of course, that I did have to climb a mountain. So that's where the first trip to Carantool came from. Amazing, man. So talk to me about your your journey, like the list of mountains you went through and your 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 journey up to Everest then. Yeah, so from the first unsuccessful attempt on Karen Tool, which only got halfway up past up past no the devil's land. <laughs> I managed to get many more summits under the belt, but uh, I remember that first trip I booked a, a guide called Niall Foley from he worked he worked out of uh, uh, Killarney and I booked Niall Foley and uh, I remember how I 
he had worked on Everest expeditions before that I loved the idea of, and I was picking his brain all the way up along. He said afterwards, he said he just knew that I had Everest on the brain, but I only got halfway to the up past the Devil's Ladder and he turned me around and said, you're not going out for today. So from that, um, you know, I, I had <laughs> many more successful climbs. I think like I probably turned to a climb about 250 times at this stage. It was kind of my go-to place and, and McGillicuddy Reeks is, was my go-to place. And I absolutely... There's any, it's you know, my favorite mountain in the world is Karen Tuhal, uh, yeah. bar none, uh, just because it resonates so much with me. And you know, before every trip and for every adventure, it was my training ground down there. I, I managed to nail it eight times in, in one day at one stage, which was a great feat, summiting eight times in one day. Amazing, yeah. So, I suppose I, I did venture further afield. I was starting to pick up uh, with a bit of experience in Ireland, I started to pick up uh, some experience in Scotland and booking uh, trips there through uh, Adventure Peaks. and Jagged Globe, uh, you know, doing the winter skills training out there every January or February. And with that, then I started to venture to the Alps, I suppose, after a couple of winter skills. Now, I did visit Scotland once, if not twice, some years uh, for the every year leading into from when I started climbing, really. And from there, I suppose the Alps was a great place that I loved. And my first big mountain there was at Mont Blanc after Kilimanjaro, which I, which I climbed before that. Uh, then I went to Mont Blanc and... The Alps became my go-to place, I suppose, for those September trip. I'd always have the February trip in to Scotland. I'd always have the September trip after the summer season working to, to the Alps, uh, you know, many trips out there. So Mont Blanc, uh, Grand Paradiso, the Matterhorn, Dante Giant, Mont Blanc du Tacoul, and lots of different technical ridges out there, you know, like the Cosmic Sorette, maybe five or six times at this stage and a load of the technical routes around there. I went out to the Eiger a couple of times, but it was out of condition, not the North face, unfortunately, but yeah. prepped to do for that. And uh, yeah, I've getting lots of experience in, in the Alps. Then I got out to Nepal at uh, base camp and more Alpine trips after that. And then eventually uh, Amade Blam was, was the big one in the Himalayas that I got nice up to summer, which was, which was amazing at 6,800 6, meters. Um, I'm hoping to get out there myself, actually, in November. What, how was that one for you, Amit Blam? Uh, amazing. Loved it. Loved it. Uh, a beautiful mountain. And I heard in your podcast when you described it as a beautiful mountain before, but uh, my wife always found it a bit weird when I described the mountain as beautiful in such affectionate terms. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can get that too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, there's beautiful things in life and a mountain isn't one of them, she says. <laughs> your wife is beautiful, for example. But uh, yeah. not a mountain, she'd remind me. Uh, but anyway, uh, amazing. Um, and, you know, uh, getting to work with the Sherpas again, uh, expedition style, uh, beautiful camps, like, you know, that camp two up on that rocky tower, uh, spectacular. Summit night, big, long summit night, you know, lovely, steep, sad, nice little bit of technical work in it. Uh, lovely exposure all the way along. Uh, amazing views, like, you know, from the summit, from up past Camp 2, you're seeing all the way on the summit, pretty much uh, you're seeing all the way down to base camp and, you know, just that huge exposure is unbelievable. Of course, that deblam, that big lace, you're a bit daunting when you're kind of moving in underneath that. Yeah. Uh, amazing experience, but for me, it was a huge learning ground. It was about a year and a half before Everest for me and um, it exposed huge weaknesses in my uh, mental abilities forever. So, I had to get physically stronger. I knew that from it. I, you know, I performed fine on it. I summited it and it was grand. So, like, you know, I knew I was going up a different notch here to Everest. But mentally, it exposed huge weaknesses. So it was, you know, that famous quote, it's not the mountains we conquer, but ourselves. And uh, certainly, yeah. you know, certainly Amin de Blam was where, where I learned so much that I needed to conquer. Um, 
I was I was climbing it with an amazing adventure called Gavin Hennigan, who I'm sure yeah, is yeah. from Galway. I've never met anybody with a mindset as as strong as Gavin. Like he's absolutely undefeatable in his own mind. You know, he's so strong-willed and so full of self-belief. And I was sharing a tent with Gavin and climbing with him. And Gavin started to suffer from altitude sickness, which, as you know, can just hit anyone at any time, irrelevant to fitness and anything like that. You know, perhaps even if you're, I won't say that because I won't say perhaps even if you're more fit, you're more prone to because it'll stop. People use it as an excuse not to train for your expeditions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, uh, so Gavin was super fit, but he got very sick. And, and I remember on the mountain, he said to me that it was hitting him hard psychologically because he said on any expedition within a few days or a week he'll find a reason why he's more likely the strongest person in the group and why he's the one most likely to achieve and it was like this huge penny drop moment for me when I realized that within like a week or so I would find a reason why everybody else on the expedition was more likely to succeed than me why I was absolutely more certain that I was going to fail. And I had a huge belief in Amit Blam for most of the time that I was going to die. A million miles away from the mindset you need for climbing mountains or doing yeah. any expeditions like any of your climbers need. And certainly, you know, while Amit Blam was a, a nice expedition and nice length of time, Everest was you know, double that, if not more, and a lot more time on your own and a lot more time at base camp. And if my mindset was out of kilter, like it was an Amade Blam, I was going to be in huge, huge trouble forever. So, so Amade Blam was amazing for so many reasons, but I do think it was the one where I really, I suppose, really discovered that kind of huge gap in my preparation. And, and that was something I had to really throw myself into. Yeah. Do you think you, like on reflection, however many years on, do you think you enjoyed Amade Blam or was it tough for you because of your mentality or how was it? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I suppose I, I wasn't enjoying it. I suppose the more I was certain I was going to fail, the more I took great pride from it at the end. Yeah. But I wasn't in the moment like I should have been. You know, I wasn't fully immersed and present in the amazing views and all that and the amazing location. Uh, much and all as I, I could see it and admire it and appreciate it now in photos, I certainly could have taken a lot more out of it than, than I did on, on, on Everest and beyond that. Yeah. But I mean, those are the trips like... I mean, especially in my experience from a failed summit attempt, you like you learn so much, you know, I think that was nice of you that you did summit, but you found the trip so tough, like you learn a whole lot about yourself and you really get stronger. Like it's very hard to learn anything from a success, you know, so it probably had a big impact on you. Yes. Yeah. So true. Jesus. Like the, uh, yeah, the biggest learnings are when things are, it's, it's when you're, when you find yourself most exposed and like, you know, like mountains are a moment a momentary experience of a few weeks or a week or a day but you know it can be amazing what you can take with that for the rest of your life and that's where the the real value is I suppose in all of your clients just like you know Kilimanjaro Mont Blanc and every other the earlier mountains for me uh you know you can take something with with you that can last long beyond that you know that period of time standing on a summit uh mm. yeah yeah cool. I, you you spoke in another podcast about uh how, you know, it reflects on that, you know, that we don't conquer mountains, you know, and you said it's just just by the will of, of nature and mother nature that, that you get to stand momentarily on top of, you know, these great mountains that, you know, could you could be wiped out on anyone, you know, at a, at a blink of an eyelid, you know, we're, we're nothing in comparison to them. Absolutely, you know, it's for always a very humbling experience, I find, you know. So, come here, I want to start asking you about Everest now, which is a fascinating topic for me and a lot of the listeners, like, so... 
One of the most dangerous parts of the whole climb is the Kumbu Icefall, which is just outside base camp where a lot of people will have been on the Everest base camp track. How was that experience for you? How did you find the Icefall? Uh, the Icefall is a yeah, very uh, surreal place. Like It's very eerie. It's... Um it's, you know, it just feels like it's a different landscape to anything I'd ever been on before, different to different to base camp, different to the rest of the mountain further up. I, I was tricking my mind, I suppose, to enjoy all this stuff. But I, I actually enjoyed all of the all of the mountain. Um, but you have to be in a very solid place in your mind for for the icefall. You know, entering it in the dark, of course, when you when you when you start moving on the way up the mountains, usually in, in the dark of night. Um crossing those ladders, uh, the huge falls at, at, at either side, looking, you know, when you're on the way back down, you can see the, the crevasses just going down to black. Um, you know, the whole thing is very unstable, of course. The, the, the towers of ice, like the size of a, of a three-story house or higher, you know, and you're kind of scooting away and around these, snaking away around these huge blocks of ice that you feel could tumble at any point in time. And then, of course, you know, you've the you've the surface you're on, and then you've got the 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 avalanche risk left and right of you on the mountains left and right of you, which was the, the big killer in 2014 and 15. Whatever's under your feet, you've got that, you've got it left and right of you, so you're kind of surrounded by that um craziness of it all. The ladders were a challenge, but I felt stable, like prepared up my backyard for the ladders. <laughs> the only risk of the dogs on either side looking up at me, uh, that I'd land on a dog. So you set ladders up, basically, you mustn't have been far off the ground at all, were you? Exactly, just just a few feet off the ground. <laughs> the only risk was I might kick the dog with a crampon. <laughs> <laughs> and you put the crampons and the boots on and you just had a practice going over and back. Yeah, that's great, man. Good we went over and back loads of times, like, and set up, you know, transition points and connecting up ropes and the guide ropes and did it out in Scotland before I went out as well um, with Adele Pennington, did a bit of preparation and did a lot around the mindset, you know, to really... You know, to be really present that my mind couldn't wander below the ladder, that you know, everything beneath mm. the, the metal of the ladder where my boot was connecting with that ladder, everything beneath that became absolutely invisible and irrelevant to me. Couldn't let my mind linger beyond the process of stepping on that ladder. So the sensation of applying the pressure onto the front of my foot, feeling the knee bend glide across the sound of the metal as it hit the, the ladder, the sensation of any wind or anything that was moving, the feeling of the rope, just filling my mind with these sensations so that I was absolutely present in what I was doing, not getting distracted so that I would do it right, but more so that my mind wouldn't wander beneath the ladder. Like a, a friend of mine fell off the ladder there there in front of us at one point, Alan, you know, and it happens and you know there, there's there's you are you you are roped up left and right but you know a lot of these ropes are just ice screws in mm. so you know when the sun hits them everyone goes past they put a maybe put a rock or put a bit of ice snow on top but often you get to the end and sometimes the rope will just pop out of your hand you know when you get to the end so so like you are roped in but there is a chance that that rope won't hold as well so you yeah. don't want to fall but a friend of mine fell in and uh and yeah so so it, it can happen too but look it was a short section it was only about an eight foot crossing and uh and and you know the sharpest pulled him out. We all give we all give a hand to to pull him out of it, but we got there. <laughs> it's good work, like at that altitude, like pulling someone out of a crevasse. <laughs> True. On the yeah. on the summit push, I had a very uh, surreal experience on the on the icefall. I'm not a very religious person, but uh, yet though I walked to the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. I started to started to ring in my mind. I just remember like a mantra. I just re saying it over and over and over again. And even to one of the guys in front of me said, what the fuck are you saying? Like he said, whichever, shut up. Uh, but I was 
mostly in my mind, but every once in a while, I think I was obviously saying it out loud. And uh, yeah, it's just, you know, sometimes a, a quiet night. I remember that's the, that final on the way up to the darkness. Um, you know, the eeriness was a clear night, absolutely calm, uh, stars up ahead. And yeah, you know, the, 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 the moon was reflecting these towers of ice so that they looked even more prominent and everything else was just, uh, was, yeah. So look, amazing but you don't underestimate the, the the risks of it i suppose either and and the idea is i suppose is to move as move as quickly as you can as safely as you can and there is times when they'll tell you uh, go as fast as you can before the point of running you know there's 50 meters here a bit like a mont blanc you know the uh mm. grand cool where, where you just have to move as fast as you can without running and there is points on the ice fall you know at six or here at six thousand meters uh where you're moving as fast as you can uh you know absolutely gasping out of breath but without running you know just get out of it you yeah know. you're barely moving at all yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> so come here i read somewhere that you said it was a 10-year journey to the summit of everest for 25 minutes on the top was it worth it and tell the listeners about your summit day as well man yeah it was 10 years so at 28 i started 38 I, at 38 i summited uh, you know, a, a long journey. I took a sabbatical in the middle for about a year and a half or two years. Um, it was a crazy time at work. And um, I suppose it's, you know, it's an important part of my, my story. I'll, I'll wedge it in here. Uh, yeah, it took your time. But there was, a, you know, the, after that Celtic Tiger, uh, that bad recession came and hospitality got completely hammered with it. And I, I had a tragedy in our family. I lost my brother-in-law to suicide. So... Fuck, man, I'm sorry. Between, yeah, between work and between family life, uh, Everest just didn't seem like the right thing to do anymore. You know, there's like, you know, there's no doubt about it. Everest and these mountains, there's a, an element of selfishness to them. You know, while you're away, people are worried and all that type of stuff. So um, yeah. so I just figured it wasn't the right thing to do uh, for my family. And then with work, you know, there was huge pressure on work. And I just need, I felt like what I needed to do was just work every hour that I could find in the day. And, and I threw myself into work. But of course, this time work was different to Celtic Tiger. It was all the bad stuff, you know, the challenges and setbacks and, you know, money tight and cash tight and, you know, business dropping and all that type of stuff that hit happened with that recession. And there was huge pressure and huge stress with work. Um, you know, nothing like I'd gone through in my life before. The one thing that I needed in my life was exercise in the great outdoors and mountains. And yeah. No one should need Everest or whatever their big challenges is to motivate them to go out for a five or 10K run or whatever it might be, or to go up Karen Tool. Uh, but for me, because there was so much pressure and there was so much other, I suppose, pulls of, of, of emotions and time, that for me, Everest was the ultimate goal that would force me to train away on a weekly basis. And mm. there's always that question of, like, why, how could you rationalize that you could do this and stuff like that? For me, there was far greater risks by not having uh, that the dream of Everest and the aspirations to climb it even if I never got there uh, it was getting me out to Karen Tool and getting me on trips um, so it was a hugely important facet of my life that brought that well-being that I needed that I needed more than ever in my life Jordan so so thankfully I got back and uh, and, and I got back on track with, with climbing and, and found my way back to the mountains again so 10 yeah. years 28 to 38 and yeah, you know, uh, it was 25 minutes on the summit, but as I said, uh, there was a lot more significant moments on the mountains than maybe uh, the, the, than just that moment on Everest. There's many, many moments that are equally significant. Yeah, God, that's amazing, man. Jesus, um, 
it's interesting, like, you know, f- climbing mountains and what comes to us and what it motivates us all. But yeah, I, I can totally relate to what you're saying. It's a real kind of headmaster in that, you know, it's something, especially big, big mountains are, it is selfish, you know, like we can dress it up any way we want. But again, as you're saying there for your own mental health, which is so important for you to do it, I think, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. Like, you know, there's risks in uh, risks in everything in life. And, uh, you know, I think our, our own personal health, our own personal mental health, there's no greater risk than not being yeah. honest and to make an effort to look after that. And, you know, I shouldn't have needed it's the only thing that I ever had a, 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 that real positive uh, fitness and well-being experience was because of that journey. So you know, that's that's what worked for me, I guess. Yeah, I guess sure. If you if you do what what's good for your own mental health, it um it affects the people in your family, in your life, in your business, and everything. So yeah, it's kind of totally essential. I can really relate to that. John, hang on there one second. I'm just going to bring Ariana on the show for a minute. Ariana, are you there? Hi, James. How are things? I'm good, thanks. So what are we talking about today? Well, I just want to talk about our goals for the future and what's next for Earth's Edge. Although we are so thrilled with the results from our B Corp assessment, we want to continue to create more positive social and environmental changes. The B Corp status isn't just about what we've done, it's about what we can do in the future. Some of our goals include becoming 100% carbon neutral, becoming a more transparent business, partnering with other B Corps to increase awareness around businesses' responsibility to the community and the environment, as well as growing and increasing our social development projects. The assessment has really helped us create a long-term strategy for the business, hasn't it? It absolutely has, and like anything else, you have to keep on improving and we have big plans for the future. That's fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on again. Thanks, James. Chat to you next week. Tell us about the summit, man. Tell us about that day. Like, that's the I'm really fascinating to hear about that. Like, the summit push comes down to six, six, six days is what it generally is, you know, there, thereabouts. And after all the acclimatization up and down, as you know well, your body is getting stronger and waiting and waiting for that weather window. And the weather was very slow to clear. The winds, these high jet stream winds of the summit were very slow to clear. And, you know, we had Wi Fi base camp. I was like looking at all the blogs and stuff. Like, you know, there was reports that maybe. Winds mightn't clear like by the time the weather eventually the winds eventually cleared on the summer, 20 or 30 percent of people had left base camp and abandoned uh, abandoned their expeditions. Like you know, it was starting to shove on a bit. Interestingly, then it just came out of nowhere, like you know, with no notice the, the forecast came that it was going to clear up. And I remember when we got uh, told about that summer push, I was at base camp for five days doing absolutely nothing, six days, nothing, just eating, eating, eating. And I started to feel real lethargic and sluggish. And Myself and a few said we'd go and climb Kalapatar. So we left base camp and went back. Uh, uh, and I remember just saying, you know what, I'm going to burn the hell out of everything. Now I'm going to push as hard as I can on this. And there was a few people ahead of me. I said, no, I'm going to pass them no matter what. Now they turned out to be very fit. So I put myself under huge pressure. <laughs> and I burned and burned and burned. And I got to the summit of Kalapatar and then I tore back to base camp. I remember on the summit, my legs were vibrating, like, you know, I pushed so hard. <laughs> I was so lethargic. I just felt like I needed to get a big burn on. I got back to base camp around 4 p.m. And Pasang, or, or Sherpa, said a, a meeting. We were waiting for you to come back. He said, meeting at 5 p.m. So a meeting was called 5 p.m. Everyone together. We're starting our summit push tonight, he said. Whoa. <laughs> okay. It'd be, like, it'd be like going out running a 10K before a county final. Do you know, you couldn't do anything. Yeah, no, I totally get it. Yeah, Jesus. So anyway, uh, summit push, 5 p.m. 
a meeting, someone pushed midnight, word came in. There was rope fixing was the challenge that year, wrong ropes, everything that had been brought to it. So word came in that the Gurkha team, which NIMS was part of this famous mountaineer that wasn't very prominent at that stage, NIMS was part of the Gurkha team and uh, word came back through Sherpas. Like it's all cloak and dagger stuff around base camp, whispers and rumours and everyone trying mm-hmm. to get out before any other expedition, get the first summits and get down before anyone else moves. And uh, word came out that these lads were going to summit, fix the ropes. So so we got the short notice and uh, it was so secretive that like we weren't allowed talk going through base camp. You know, head torches off, don't tell anybody, don't even tell home that you're summiting you know or, or sorry don't put it up on social media or anywhere that you're going for your summit attempt just you know maybe give a message at home but to tell them not to tell anybody so the summit attempt kind of came out of nowhere and 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 midnight onto camp one didn't rest at camp one i just had a bit of food and straight on to camp two so first day was okay. grace camp all the way to camp two a long hard day at what elevation are you there camp three seven two i think so okay. we're, we're probably camp two is about I'd say about six two or six three because actually yeah. camp one and camp two there's no big difference in elevation only maybe I'd say 200 meters or 100 meters it's very flat there's a long kind of flat drawn out walk to from camp one to camp two okay you know one of the things that I took to mountaineering for was because I felt like I had a natural ability to acclimatize you know from the very early days in Kilimanjaro and stuff things tended to come right for me and for some reason on Everest, I wasn't acclimatizing as good. And like this guy, Alan, who I mentioned, I trained with him in Scotland about two months before I went out and I had so much work put in, like I was flying, I was flying it out in Scotland. But when I, uh, when I don't want to say I was flying out past him in Scotland, which where I come from. But when I got, to, yeah. when I got to Everest, he was pulling out ahead of me, you know, every day. I remember I got to camp two and I was you know, seven in our expedition. It was probably the second or third last day and second last maybe. And, uh, and I started to eat food at Camp 2. And this was my big setback moment on, on the summer push. I started to eat food at Camp 2. I started to vomit. I started to eat food again. I started to vomit. And it uh, turns out I was going to be unable to hold on any food for the entire six-day summer push. Wow. The most I was able to take on on subsequent days was sugary water and maybe a couple of squares of chocolate in the evening. So, you know, when you're burning all these calories, fifteen or 20,000 calories a day, and, uh, you know, the plan was maybe two litres of water, maybe five, three to 5,000 calories worth of food. And all of a sudden then you can barely hold down water. And uh, it wasn't food poisoning. It was like it was, like it was nearly a sunstroke or your know, stomach just gave up. Like the rest of me was fine, but the stomach just fucking wouldn't hold down food. I didn't realise how it was going to last so long at Camp 2, but I remember in Camp 2 saying, this isn't good. You know, I was already struggling and the fucking stomach yeah. was giving up on me. I can imagine your confidence is fairly low, all right, yeah. It was, it was, it was a bit of a, it was Bit of a frightener, all right. Uh, but you know what? I, I had every tool that I needed in the psychological toolbox uh, to kind of get me through it. So, you know, I had everything like that was going to turn all the negatives into positives and fill my mind with positive thoughts and conversations and all that type of stuff. So, you know, I had all that stuff. And I remember one of the techniques I said was the following morning, I said, I, I tried to uh, stay out in front and get that boost of confidence from being out in front from the team. So I was up first and packed and sunscreen and gear on and everything ready. And I set off you know, straight after the, after the lead Sherpa. And I remember within about, within about two or 300 meters, I was fucking empty. Like I was exhausted. I was on the ground, like just gassed out. like couldn't maintain that pace. And eventually, of course, I found myself that everyone had passed me. And within the first 20 minutes of the day, I was now at the back, at the very back. And, uh, I suppose there's one standout moment and that was that moment for me when the Sherpa, the last Sherpa said to me, you know, one step at a time. 
and uh, and that was when I started to break it down into these mini goals uh, and started to look at, at at micro goals and breaking the mountain down. Because when I started on this summer push, you know, you really are starting to start thinking about I'm going there, I'm going to end up there in a few days, and you start yeah. fixating on the summit. And um, and I was like two thousand meters below the summit, and it was over my left shoulder, like way up there. Um, and 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 I had to just break that down and break it down into fifty or hundred meters and start uh, and start pushing forward. And it very much became you know, one foot in front of the other, one step at a time. Now I wasn't it wasn't that I was completely goosed. It was just that I had to find my pace and I just had to had to psychologically not give up and not get disheartened or demoralized by my pace. And um, you know, sure enough, from camp two, we got I got to camp three, camp three to camp four. Um, you know, I was at the back, second last, first last, third last, something like that. You know, every day, um, never, like never, never in the in the top five. Um, mm. Eventually, camp four, of course. You know, we're touching on the dead zone. Then uh, seven thousand eight hundred meters, seven thousand nine hundred meters, um, and yeah, that summit night was uh, was just uh, unbelievable. I felt absolutely present. I felt absolutely, you know unbelievably grateful for having the ability to keep moving even at the and I remember I set off late from like Jesus you know I talk about getting it wrong on, on the most important night of my life remember the Sherpa said a uh, summit attempt 9pm you know 9pm and I thought that meant you know start waking up at 9 like you know you weren't going to sleep you only arrived in at 4pm or something you were just going to rest and put on music and so I said summit attempt so I thought that meant like you know start getting yourself organized at 9pm she would be setting off around 10 like you know there was this thing about Sherpa time there was never an accurate time like but <laughs> on the button of nine I was inside the sleeping bag uh, Alan, Alan in the tent beside me inside the sleeping bag we couldn't hear everyone getting ready beside us and like you know it's far, 45 minutes to get ready at, you know to get all the gear on at least yeah yeah I remember the tent up and they were like where are you where are you come on come on <laughs> lying off bed I can, <laughs> You know, lying in on the fucking summit night. Uh, so so uh, Alan got out just before me, or I got out just before Alan, actually. So I was the second last for our expedition to leave on, on the summit attempt. Uh, but it just clicked for me on the summit night. You know, the acclimatization just peaked for me. And my head was in a good place. And my body was in a good place. And I actually moved really well on that summit night. So all that shite down below didn't happen up higher. Now, I still wasn't eating and all that stuff. But I was moving really well and I was really present. And you know, people can get very delirious and you know, and not remember the night, like, you know, and feel like they're pushing too far. You know, the strongest man in our group, Adriano, without a doubt, the strongest every day, first in at every camp, uh, so strong. He had one-to-one Sherpa support every day, even on the trek to base camp, because he was in hours ahead of us. And on the summit night, acclimatization hit him hardest so much so that he was saying his his act of contrition he was saying his prayers uh, because he didn't feel like he was going to survive the summit night so mm. you know that crazy stuff that can happen with acclimatization and altitude um, you know some people take that big bang that it hits them really hard and for me uh, it just clicked and I moved really well I was second to the summit and I was the first back to camp four from our entire from our expedition um, at the least amount of time I suppose in, in the death zone and, and just felt, you know, I always wondered when I got to the summit, you know, everyone would say, push harder than you've ever pushed before. You know, don't hold back and don't give up and, you know, all that stuff. And you just take all that in. But then the next person will say, make sure you have enough in the tank to get back down. When you get to the summit, you're only halfway there. 
don't empty the tank, have enough in the tank to get back down. So the big unknown in my head all the time was, you know, will I get to the summit and will I feel like I haven't enough to get back down? That was that kind of underlying subconscious fear. And, I, you know, I, I do remember being on the summit and having that realisation that I've plenty in the tank, you know, I'm safe, you know, I, I, I'm relatively safe, but I'm safe and that I feel like I've enough to get back down. I'm very yeah. present. My mind is absolutely alert and, uh, you know, I was I was very tuned in. Amazing. Yeah, it just kind of goes to show, like, we're always telling people on, on expedition, like, to just focus on the day at hand because uh, I wouldn't say it's that common your experience to be really struggling and then go higher up a mountain and then start feeling better. That's It's amazing. It must have been such a satisfying feeling to be, going up the biggest mountain in the world going like you know physically i've got this you know it must have been really nice for you like obviously you're going through a huge amount of pain but that feeling like must have been incredible it was great and i remember being feeling like really jolly coming back down like really jolly you know like you know when people were around you as i said like delirious like as lads you know i saw like a full-on huge nearly fist fight between a client and a sherpa a climber and a sherpa that the Sherpa, you know, I was escalating, the Sherpa said, that was it, he was gone, you know, and, and your man uh, was just completely off his head. Mm. And uh, I saw it, there's that extreme to feeling, it was so reassuring to feel present and feel like, you know, absolutely everything I was doing, my ropes and abseiling, everything I was doing, I felt very present with it all. And like, you know, could chat to people, could chat to the Sherpa, although he had much English, but I felt like I was blattering onto him a lot. And, you know, she probably didn't understand you anyway. It's your old Claire accent, like <laughs> <laughs> even doing a bump slide on a section on the way back down and all, you know, doing these like, you know, 50 meter bump slide. I was like, here I am fucking bump sliding on a, on Everest to descent, like, you know, where, where it's nice and steep, but not too steep that it's going to get out of control. So, yeah, yeah. you know, it felt like this is what I thought it was going to be. But, you know, as I said, it can, uh, that experience can be, I was at, like, it was physically really tough like you know fucking I wouldn't I don't mean to underestimate the risks and the challenges with it but for me it was just like it just clicked at the right time and uh, while it was really tough it, it was it just felt like it was working for me like I fucking absolutely fell apart on the last few days again like I remember coming back into base camp I was the very last from the expedition again back into base camp like I couldn't take five steps and I'd have to stop again like even coming through the ice fall like I just couldn't I was completely empty, like I had no energy left. So, uh, so it was the highs and lows. That was exactly it. Yeah, lows. Excuse the pun. Oh, amazing, man. Well, congratulations on the achievement. It's incredible. What I wanted to ask you, I know your wife Avian came with you to base camp. <laughs> How many days in advance of you going on summit would she have left? She spent one night at base camp, and then I walked out to climb ties on Labuje instead of Island Peak, and. Uh, she left with one night in Lubuja. I was moving up the mountain and she left. So, you know, she was gone for six weeks, five, six weeks before I summited something like that, you know. So she was gone a long time and that was a hard goodbye. I was going to ask you, yeah, what was it like saying goodbye to her? What conversation did you guys have before her leaving? Like, she was very calm about the whole thing. Like, she loves the Sherpas, the Nepalese culture, all of that. Like, uh, she'd been to base camp with me five years earlier and like she wasn't in the right headspace or didn't enjoy it as much. And then completely, you know, loved it and absolutely had huge trust in, in the process, had huge trust in the expedition team, sent Himalayas, and actually was the calm person and I was getting a bit delirious, you know, that day. <laughs> so I get yeah. like overly emotional. I mean, uh, my nephew was there, I was saying goodbye to him and saying goodbye to her. Like I really, like I was very, I was very emotional, you know, I think because uh, I had them all the way into base camp, you know, didn't feel like you know, I was on the Everest expedition. 
And then it was like that moment that they were saying goodbye. It was like, that was like the start of the expedition. So even though, you know, I was, I left home, I don't know, 10 days or two weeks at that stage, it felt like it was only starting at that point. And it was a very tough place because, you know, you're in the mountain. I was facing into the 6,000, 6,100 meter summit the next day. And it was really getting real very fast. And uh, yeah, hugely emotional. Yeah, I actually had a similar experience a few years ago, I think in 2016, on a seven and a half thousand meter peak in China called Muzigata. My ex-wife, my wife at the time, was climbing with me, but she decided to turn around and go home. And like, I've left, you know, I've gone away on expedition and said goodbye people to people. But like, the experience of watching her leaving camp and like, I could still see her walking away two hours later, Jeez. and uh, it's just such a long walk out, and you could see the whole thing, and it's a totally different experience. Um, because party is like, oh, I want to go home too. But obviously <laughs> you're like, you've made a mental commitment to yourself to keep going on the mountain, but it's a total head messer, isn't it? Like it's a completely different experience. And, and no one has ever asked me that. I actually had never really thought about that or anything, but you're right. Like I couldn't, like, I couldn't describe how emotional I was. Like I was literally in like, you know, floods of tears from the morning. Yeah. yeah you know, like I'm very close to my nephew and all that. Time. And then starts becoming like the whole thing just gets so real and it's not like, you know, it's not just the fear of like, there is uh, subconscious always has fears of on any mountain, you know, there's risks and it was just everything. And I think, as you said, maybe it's because you're in that alien environment. It's very different from saying so goodbye to someone at home. It was amazing though, to have her there because um, the more of an understanding she had of everything out there, the better it was for her because it wasn't as alien to her when she was reading yeah. stuff or understanding or reading about the icefall, reading blogs or, getting updates um it, the more she understood it the definitely made a huge difference to keep her calm when i was out there yeah yeah exactly and i guess meeting your sherpa team who by sounds of things were really really solid you know that really put her mind at ease amazing man that's so interesting the other thing i wanted to ask you about is i got the opportunity to ask you to come on the podcast because you were in touch with me last week about uh becoming a b corp obviously earth's edge you became a b corp a little earlier this year so you're planning on making the Armada Hotel a B Corp. What's driving you to do that? Yeah, look, I just, I think B Corp is amazing. I think, you know, what it stands for, you know, as much for me and for the team, it's to get ourselves. It's not a marketing thing, first and foremost, um, although no doubt we will use it for marketing, yeah. but it's not what's driving it. It's about, to start out the conversation saying that, you know, my dad set up a pub here 54 years ago and, you know, I'd like to see myself plowing on and working away here for 20 or 30 years more and you know profit is never going to be that driver to keep you passionate about something you know they have to believe in it It has to be more than just the salary to them or the prop bottom line or whatever it might be it has to matter that we're doing something positive and you know the business is solid and 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 amazing customer base and i would like to be able to do something meaningful with that that means that the business can make a difference uh you know to the environment to the community and all the other facets that, that that's involved with it. when it comes to business it would be the everest in in my business agenda something that's that's out there that that i would love to love to achieve and love to stand over and because uh you have to stand for something, I suppose, and we'd like to stand for the right things and, and make a difference. And you know what? Someone might be listening to this and, and say there's lots of things we don't stand for. I certainly I certainly know we, 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 we're doing a lot right, but we have a lot more that we need to do right. Uh, but it's, I suppose, about going off on that journey, you know, about putting it out there and getting there and making a difference. Total respect, man, because it is a journey, you know. There's, uh, we've reached that point, but we have a lot more to do. And like we've got big plans to just keep driving in that area. Um, but yeah, as I said to you last week, if if I could be of any help, like pick up the phone at any point, 
And before I let you go, if uh, you had any advice for someone listening who's who's got an eye on Everest, like what what would you say to them? Like, I'd certainly, uh, yeah, encourage anyone to put an eye on Everest. I think the most important thing is to enjoy the journey. I've had people that I've worked with since um, Everest that have uh, pursued the Everest objective, but maybe haven't enjoyed the journey that they're too focused on the end goal on that end mountain. Um, and it was advice I got just before Everest was, you know, you know the summit might never happen for many reasons. Um, and Everest might never happen. And the summit, even if you get to Everest, might never happen. You know, you can't, you can't set off on a journey purely for that, that moment on the summit. And I started to realize that, like, the importance of every expedition and to be very present in every expedition, every climb, you can never underestimate any mountain. And it's absolutely amazing to have that ultimate objective out there. But you know, every mountain in between should be should matter and should be significant every day on you know from the very first days from Scotland to Killy to any other mountain people do everyone is as significant you know I, I before we went recording you know I said I didn't have I found Killy really tough at the time you know when I did yeah. and you know that's that's it like every every mountain is is a challenge and every mountain presents its own challenge so uh so apply yourself to them enjoy them uh, be really present and 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 as you move up the rungs of the ladder um you know keep pushing on with that journey but you know never make any mountain seem insignificant on on the scale of Everest because uh because there's a there's just as challenging days that you can have on uh, on many other mountains oh sure i know too well man i've got got lost in the schlee blooms like which are barely even mountains you know so yeah we've all that's great advice i'm sure the header i was listening to yeah yeah exactly yeah i was chatting my dad about it but um John, that was absolutely brilliant, man. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. I think people are really going to love it. And we'll keep in touch anyway about B Corp. Great. And, and look, uh, congratulations to you. And oh, do you know what? I have to acknowledge Brian Bateson as well, who's one of your amazing guides. You know, I've worked with, I was listening to on a podcast, John Healy was mentioned as a guy too. I did a little bit of rock climb with John Healy, but I've done a lot with Brian. And, uh, you know, you get the best people, you know, fair play to you. And I met so many of your teams uh, during my times at, uh, on, on the Everest region and the, you know, your company, your guides and the professional support you provide is, is unbelievable. And uh, Brian was a huge part of my preparation for Everest. I did so many days and so many days rock climbing, so many days training with him. And, you know, we've, we've great talent and fair play in Ireland and fair play to you. You tend to attract the best of it. So well done. I think, uh, I think you have a great company and, uh, you know, if uh, hotel keeping doesn't work out for me, it might take me on someday. Yeah, absolutely, man. <laughs> oh that's great stuff thank you so much for that compliment i really appreciate it and uh sure hopefully brian is listening now he's probably sick of listening to me in the podcast (laughs) ages ago like you know but uh thanks so much thank you man talk to you soon this podcast was produced by earth's edge we're a small business based in ireland who organize big adventures all over the world for more information about us and the trips discussed on this podcast visit earths-edge.com or follow us on Instagram. Don't forget to sign up to our mailing list to be in the running to win one of our summit jackets. There's a link in the show notes. And while you're there, if you could subscribe and review the podcast, that'd be brilliant. I'm your host, James McManus. Thanks for listening and have a super week.